At this point, we are going to continue in, uh, in together looking at the book of Genesis. If you guys would turn to Genesis chapter 1 and stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's word, we will be reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, you are the creator of all things, and specifically, you are the one who has made us. Our lives are not our own, but they are a gift from you, and through Christ, you have made a way back for us to experience relationship with you, and for that, we are thankful this morning. I pray that our time as we look at these final moments of creation that we would be drawn to recognize your purposes, your grace, and your care for us. So please direct and guide our hearts to see you, to behold you. Let this not be a time about us, but let it be a time in which we can see you and your glory. It is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. You guys have a seat. There's a story that is told of, uh, of three men who were working side by side in a stone quarry. And another man was passing by, and uh, he looked at the three men, and he simply asked, what are you doing? One of the men replied irritably, can't you see what I'm doing? I'm hammering on this stone. The next man turned and replied, kind of coldly, he said, well, I'm earning a paycheck for the week. And the third man turned to the questioner. He stuck out his chest proudly, and he said, I'm building a cathedral. Of those three responses, which of those men do you think had the most joy in what he was doing? Well, easily, probably the third man. Because you see, with each of those individual responses, we see that each of those men that their perspective was determined by their purpose. 
How they approached their work and what they were doing was, was defined and determined by the purpose for which they were there. Do you ever wrestle with purpose, significance, value? You know, those, those big, massive questions like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? How do I determine my worth? How do I find value for me? These are essentially the fundamental questions of humanity, right? Your dog is not sitting at home pondering these things. Maybe just wondering when you're going to get home to let him out, give him food. But those questions may enter into your mind from time to time. And here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God is bestowing on us both value and purpose. And it's in these passages that we see that God's purpose and His grace is revealed through the creation of man, through the commission of man, and ultimately the care of humanity. And that's how we're going to look at this this section this morning, is the creation of man, the commission of man, and ultimately the care of man. So let's start there with, with this creation of humanity. In Genesis 1.26, there is something that should stand out to us. There is a distinct shift of language used to introduce the next thing to be created. Also, as, as we see in, in, in the creation of, of, of the animals, it says God says, let, let the earth bring forth these living creatures. And then again, it says that God said. So again, we have this, this marker in the text highlighting this divine speech. So it's saying, hey, pay attention. This is, this, is, this is happening. God is speaking here. But previously, we've seen things introduced like this. It says, let there be. Let the waters do this. Let the earth do that. Let there be lights. Let the waters swarm. Then on the sixth day, it begins in a similar way where it says, let the earth bring forth all of these animals, all of these creatures. But then in verse 26, we get this distinct shift, this change, where we read and it says, let us make man in our image. There's this a distinct and special creation that is about to take place. God is going to introduce a, a, a creature onto the scene, onto the stage that he has prepared, and this one is going to have the lead role in the drama that is going to play out. This is the central masterpiece of the creation, and he places his image in and upon this one. And we got our mic doing the same thing as it's done the last couple weeks. And I promise you, we tested this out this week. All right. Nothing like getting interrupted when you're trying to make a really distinct point, right? So, bear with us. We will eventually get a mic that works up here. So, I'm going to just pull this out. Can't get any more awkward than it already is. All right. Let's roll with this. So, we see this distinct creation of man. What's clear is that man is created distinct from all the animal creatures. All the other animals, all the other creatures are lumped together, but there is a distinct creation of man that is set forth. And what are the animals called to do? All they do is swarm and creep and reproduce, right? That's what animals do. So regardless of how much you love your cat, 
and how wonderful it is. All it does is just creep around and make babies. But, but not so of mankind. And we will see this purpose that is set forth for man in the, in the next few lines. But we find the thing that sets man apart from the creation in this declaration that man is created in God's image after his likeness. And one of the interesting facts of, of this passage is the sudden kind of unexpected introduction of these plural pronouns. It says, he uses, let us and, and, and make man in our image. So what's going on there? Why, why, why does it shift to these plural pronouns? Various views have been set forth. Um, but, but, but likely there could be an early indication that God is actually pointing to the reality that he exists as a being in community. We don't fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity of God being one being in three persons until the, later on in the, the full disclosure of, of, of the New Testament as we bring those together. But even here at the beginning, there's a hint, something pointing us in that direction possibly. But we see that man is created, not like the animals, according to their kind, but he is created according to the image and likeness of the creator. And these terms, image and likeness, aren't necessarily two distinct ideas, but they're they're basically parallel terms that kind of give a a fuller sense of, of, of what is being said here. So... The obvious and natural question then is, what does it mean for mankind to be made in the image of God? And first and foremost, I think we need to just just start with what is absolutely clear in the passage. When it uses the term man, the Hebrew Adam, it is used, yes, to refer to a historical, literal Adam, but it's also used representatively of the humanity as a whole. And this is further clarified in verse 27 when it reads that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. So I want to say very clearly that this text declares that both men and women are equally created in the image of God. It wasn't that, that man was created and then God had to like find some other way to, to fully complete that. Yes, there's an aspect of our interaction in, in personal relationships that, that, that reflect the image, the way in which we live that out as image bearers. But both men and women individually are image bearers. It means if you're single in here, it's not like you, you need something else to complete that image in you. Individually, God has specifically created men and women as his image bearers. And now that doesn't mean that there may not be a distinction in, in the, the role or the function that, that God designed between the genders, but it does mean that all men and all women, all of humanity is endowed with the image of God. But we come back to the first question, what, what is this image? How do we understand it? And to, to get a, a fuller understanding, we need to, as Jed reminded us a few weeks back, understand the, the context in which this book was written. And Jed highlighted how that within that culture, when a conquering ruler would take over a land or a people, he would oftentimes set up his image, a statue, in a sense, within that land that was a reminder to all those around him, those living there, of the one who ruled over that area. And that image was a physical reminder of the actions and power of that ruler. I think in many ways that the statues and memorials that we set up 
even today, have, have similar purpose, similar function. You think of the, the memorials in Washington, D.C., or the statues that get uh, posted up outside of sports arenas. Those, those things don't exist and aren't put there just to simply give us a, a reminder of what that person looked like physically, right? But they, but they speak to that, that, that person's actions, their impact, their uh, characteristics, their attributes, the things that they did, their accomplishments. They stand there to, to, to reflect the person that is being represented by the statue and causes to remember them in that sense. So quite simply, to bear the image of God means that we reflect God in some way. God has bestowed aspects of his own character and his nature into humanity and thus sends us out onto the stage of creation to reflect himself, to display his glory and represent him in this world. So you and I and every person has been formed and made in the image of God. Just consider that. Your own life, specifically you, have been made and designed and placed here by the Creator. It was not an accident, but it was given with specific value and specific purpose whether you believe him or not. You see, who and what you are at your fundamental identity is determined not by you and what you imagine yourself to be, but by who and what God is and what he has declared you to be. So what does this mean for the world in which we find ourselves? And we have to keep in mind that what we're looking at is, 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 is an initial perfect creation, the way God designed it. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will in Genesis 3 see how sin comes in and distorts and mars this image and the way we reflect God. But it doesn't mean that that image is lost in humanity. It is still stamped upon humanity today. And it has massive implications for the way we view the world, the way we interact with others. And as the only creatures who, who bear God's image, all of humanity is endowed with intrinsic value, dignity, and worth that is elevated above the animal world. Every man, every woman, every child, every ethnicity, every background, every mental capacity, every developmental stage has inherent God-given worth and purpose. And how we view other human beings as must be shaped by this foundational reality that we look out onto a world that is filled with image bearers of God. So just practically, understanding all people as divine image bearers means that we value human life and we do not allow it to be extinguished prematurely, whether before birth or at the end of life. Seeing people as image bearers means that we seek to rescue where we can and protect the weak, the abused, and the vulnerable. Believing that all of those around us bear God's image means that we denounce racial prejudice and we simply love and serve our neighbors. And as Jesus said, who is your neighbor? It's everyone. It's this this world filled with his image bearers that have value and worth because God has placed them here. This is the declaration of God that we have been made in his image. 
But we also see bound up with this image that is bestowed upon humanity. We, we can't distinguish and, and, and pull apart the function of, of how, we, how we reflect God's image from th- that image itself. They go together. And so we see bound up is this commission that is set forth as those who have been made in God's image. He says, let them therefore do this. And so we see next the commission of humanity. This has often been labeled as the cultural mandate. As those who have been placed here to represent God, we have been given a very specific purpose. And we see this in verse 26 as well as verse 28. And God says what? He says, as those made in my image now, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over everything, over the birds, over the fish, over every living creature that's on this earth. And when he says these things, the implications are far-reaching. It doesn't simply mean that we find a member of the opposite sex and we start making babies. And it doesn't mean also that we just get to go and do whatever we want with any of the animals that we find here. But there is a responsibility that is set forth to take this newly created world and to cultivate it, to take the raw elements and to to begin to shape them and use them in a way that will allow for an ever-increasing population of image bearers to flourish together in this world that God has made and designed to work in harmony together. So yes, we reproduce physically. This world needs more image bearers. But we also function as God's representatives his rulers over this place. So we're called to care for it, to see it grow, to display the beauty of God. So bound up with this mandate is living out the reflection of God in in the ways that we develop societies, the way that we create culture. From the establishment of villages, towns, cities, neighborhoods, and all of the infrastructures that are needed to sustain them all the way to making of music and art that we enjoy and we experience together. All of those things together reflect the creativity and the beauty of God and all of the ways that we together cultivate this world. In that way, we reflect the attributes of God to each other and we fill this earth with a world in a world that displays and declares God's glory. So because we are called to care for, for this world and to cultivate it, it means that, that, that we actually care that humanity doesn't, doesn't just abuse the resources that are available to us, right? So this commission actually has implications for the way we view things like animal conservation, recycling, fuel consumption, pollution, water usage. For Christians, those, those aren't just non-issues or merely a political battlefield, but they're bound up with what it means for humanity to faithfully care for this world that we've been placed as rulers over. So yes, we can slaughter and eat cows. But we do it in a way that recognizes that we are called to the responsible care of this world. To use the resources in the life that is here for the benefit and flourishing of humanity, but also for the stewardship of this creation. So we don't raise up animals in in, in value to the same level as, as humans, but we also don't abuse them for senseless purposes. We don't worship the creation, but we care for the creation as God's representatives and his stewards. And we have to realize that in light of the fall, all of this work, all of this this creation making happens amidst the cloud of sin. 
And we'll see the effects of that as we move forward in Genesis. But we see that God's good design was to fill this earth with his representatives to cultivate a thriving environment and where all could be cared for and all could live under the gracious and right rule of God. And what we see as we move through the narrative of the Bible is that God is on a mission to restore that image. And this happens as Jesus comes as a fully human person. And we find this set of him in the book of Hebrews. It says that the Son... Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of his being. So Jesus comes as the only true image bearer, and he offers himself so that we can be united to him. And through the Spirit, then there's this this work of transformation that's happening as this image is being restored, which is why in the New Testament we we, we come to passages like Colossians 3.9, which starts with, do not lie to each other. There's this this moral change that needs to happen, this call for truthfulness in our lives. And not just because truthfulness in and of itself is is good, but he roots it in this, in, in the image of God. He says, since you have taken off your old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. The transformation of our lives, setting aside sinful practices, pursuing holiness, it's not just obeying a rule book, but it is, it is the way that God is using and, and seeking to transform us into His image so that we more accurately reflect Him to this world. And God desires to take His people, His church, and display Himself to this world. And He does it through the transformation of us individually and collectively as a people to where we reflect him more accurately. And so as his image bearers, as we live in this world, that we recognize that we are those being renewed, and so so we have a part to, to play in cultivating and exercising dominion over this world in a way that leads to human flourishing. So that means that we use our gifts and our talents not merely to lift ourselves up, but to point others to behold God whether that be through your music, through your artwork, through athletics, through our community involvement or our business endeavors. All of those things are ways in which we, as those being restored in the image of God, can reflect God to the world. So if you run a business, you do it not merely for your own benefit, for your own gain, for your own financial prosperity. Yes, those things are bound up in it, but you also do it for the good and benefit of your clients, for the community and the society in which that business operates. It means that we as a church, primarily as a church that is scattered into this world in different spheres and different arenas of our society, as those who are being transformed, we seek to influence and help society grow and transform in healthy ways. We give our time to serve and care for the needy where we can. We fight where we can against human trafficking and abuse. We create homes that are places of hospitality and refuge for others. This means that all of our various forms of employment and any vocation that we may choose has significant impact, not just in providing for ourselves, but in creating a world that can more accurately represent and reflect God and his character. 
So what you do and where you work, where you invest your time, matters as part of God's purpose for which he has placed us here. This is why I'm thrilled to hear of the stories that that take place even throughout our body. Yesterday, there was a team that went and helped with Habitat for Humanity, an organization that was established and rooted on these principles of recognizing a a better world rooted in the image of God to to provide housing for, for all. We had a, a team that went and just helped build of their own time to, to build a home for these, this, this family to live in. That's why supporting organizations like the Alpha Center who are doing a good work in this city to love both mothers and babies, to care for them in a difficult season of life. It's good for us to, to come around and support and, and invest in those arenas. Why our support of, of organizations like Life for the Innocent who is seeking to, to put an end and, and help where they can to stop the abuse of children around the world through, through human trafficking. It's why we can celebrate those in our body who are using their gifts. I often think of Ryan and Shay and I follow them on Instagram and just seeing their pictures that are, that are just beautiful display of creativity and the things that they can do, uh, to just, to, whether, whether it's a, a nature image or, or, or a snapshot of a person. All you have, if I follow anybody else on Instagram, your Instagram's great. Your kids look really cute, but it's, it's kind of next level with, uh, with, with what I'm talking about here. It just, uh, it just, it just has this way of, 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 of drawing us to behold, um, people in this world in, in a really powerful way. Whether it's the businesses that are operated within this church to give our time and, and, and invest in, in, in not just the business model for ourselves, but to, to really care for people and to provide a great resource that actually like makes clients take that next step to where they're going. And we can go on and on about the practical ways in which this is lived out and seen within our body. But in everything we do, it has value and purpose and worth because it's, it's given to us of God to create this world in which he is reflected, in which he is lifted up, in which he, he is seen. And you see, apart from an understanding of the image of God in which we were made, and apart from understanding the commission that we have been given, you see, secular his, humanism has no way to truly account for human value or purpose. From an atheistic worldview, at the end of the day, human dignity, worth, and purpose are simply societal creations born merely out of our desire to survive or whatever individual purpose we can conjure up and make ourselves believe. There's a physics teacher named uh, Alom Shaha, I believe a a former uh, dedicated uh, Muslim, wrote a book called The Young Atheist's Handbook. And uh, when asked this question, this uh, physics teacher said uh, said this. He, He was asked... Where do you find purpose in life? This is what he said. He said, yes, of course I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. But the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. Cognitive dissonance? Embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. I teach. Be creative. I mean, make a curry, build some bookshelves, write a poem. And most importantly, find people you like and love and spend lots of time with them. I regularly have people over for dinner, throw parties for no other reason than I just want to spend time surrounded by the people I love. And if you're really stuck, eat rice and curry. Physically filling yourself with the food you love really does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. Did you catch, did you catch what was said? 
Basically, he said, life is meaningless, so just pretend that it isn't. Find meaning in the subjective pursuit of the things that you like to do. Use other people to try to fill some void in your life. And if that doesn't work, eat yourself out of your depression. And and I'm, I'm, I don't bring that up just to merely mock or anything. If, if, if there's someone in here wrestling with that perspective, like, 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 I'm so glad you're here. But the reality is apart from, a, from something outside of ourselves to give us value, to give us worth, then it's just this subjective emptiness that is just constantly fleeting. And what's interesting is I read those things, the things that he says to pursue purpose in are ultimately the things that, that God has designed us to, to reflect his image through through the creation of culture and enjoying these things that God has given us. The problem is those things were never intended to terminate on themselves. Building a bookshelf is never going to fully satisfy you. But building a bookshelf in recognition of the fact that God has put us here to create a thriving world that reflects Him, now we're heading in the right direction. But we will only truly respect value and care for all people when we recognize that God has made us in his image and in his likeness. And we will only find stable purpose when we believe that we are here for God's purposes and not our own. But this is the declaration of God that he has made us in his image and he has placed us here to fill this earth with his representatives to create a flourishing world. And as the passage moves on, we see finally that he has not just left us to ourselves in this, but we also see his care for humanity. He cares for us in this calling. And Genesis 1 finishes with this declaration of God's care for creation. It says that he provides food for the humans and the animals alike, right? And uh, as I was reading this, this was a section that I really struggled with this this week because uh it seems as though this might be the only time that a, a post-fall world is better than a pre-fall world. Did you guys see what they were, had to eat here? It says that uh, he gives them plants and fruit. It's not until Genesis 9 that like, the animals are able to be eaten. So as I was wrestling with this, I'm like, boy, Torchy's tacos wouldn't really be a thing in this world. So what's that all about? I don't know if you guys have been to Torchy's. Torchy's. If you haven't been there today, make a make a make a plan to go. And I got two words for you: Hillbilly Trailer Park. Secret menu has fried chicken, chorizo, and bacon. I think some queso on there too. So it will change your life. Not sure how I got there, but uh, but coming back. Um, that's something that we can wrestle with once we get to Genesis nine. But here. The green plants and the fruit are given for humanity and the animals to eat. This just declaration that, that God has provided, which in that, in that culture, in that setting, for the, uh, the, the, the pagan religions around him, it was actually the, the humanity that was given and, and, and ultimately created so then they could provide food and bring offering of food to the gods. And this, in this situation, is actually reversed in which God provides for his creatures who he has made. And he provides even simply in the food that we have to eat every day. But we see also that God's declaration here at the end of of this chapter changes. And there is a distinct shift in the way that, that he describes it. 
You see, previously, all the individual acts of creation on all the other days, it says God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. But here, he says, it is very good. And there's even this word in there, it's like, behold. He looks out on this creation, the completion, the collective whole of what he has made together is like, this is perfect. This is just how I designed it. This is very good. The sum is greater than just the parts. And God's world was designed just as it should be, a good world for us to live in and provided for us exactly what we need. And then as as we see the seventh day introduced at the beginning of chapter 2, we read that God finished his creation and then he rested from all of his work. And this is what we see as the institution of the Sabbath principle that we ultimately see throughout Scripture. And we don't have time this morning to really trace this massive theme throughout all of the Bible. But I want to just make a couple, a couple observations here. The principle of Sabbath was established at creation. This wasn't simply an institution that was added to the Mosaic Law. But this was picked up from that which God gave at the very beginning. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this principle of Sabbath rest was set forth for man because we need rest. God didn't rest because he needed it, because he was tired after all this, you know, work of creation. But he's setting forth something for us, a pattern of life that is practically lived out daily and weekly but also something that points to something much greater, something eschatological that's in sight. We all realize that we have to work, right? That work is good, that work was given before the fall. In chapter 2, we'll see that, that man was sent to work and to keep the garden. So both building and maintaining are, are good things, ways that God has, has, has placed before us as part of our humanity. But God also sustains the things so that we can rest. And we need to embrace the principle of Sabbath that is set forth as a principle. Amidst hectic and busy lives that we all lead, we must make it a priority to have a regular rhythm of rest, to cease from what we're doing and find rest. For our mental, for our physical, for our spiritual health, we need to be a people that knows how to rest and to receive rest as a gift from God. God did not design us to just run endlessly, but he's made us to need rest. Even even just the need to sleep is a reminder of this. So what does Sabbath look like in your life? And I think we need to consider rest even even in our in, in. in our lives of what that actually looks like. Is rest just simply going and filling our lives with more activities, more recreation, more things that aren't uh, our jobs? Or do we actually have time where we, can, where we can stop and pause and reflect, where we can pursue God, where we can, we can see that, 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 that everything that he has made and everything that he's given us, the ways he's using us, is for his glory, for his purposes? Or do we just keep going and going and going? trying to fill our lives with something. We need to wrestle with that and wrestle what rest and Sabbath looks like in your life. Do you have a day, at least a week, where, for the most part, you can step back and just rest in God? 
You know, even, even for me in my own life, this is, this is a struggle. I miss my responsibilities here at the church, running a little side business of, of handyman work and four young boys, hobbies that I love to pursue. It's just hard to, to stop, right? There's always something else that needs to be done. There's always something else that could be fixed at the house. There's always something else that, that needs to be addressed, another person to meet with, something else to go and be a part of. And I struggle with this. And sometimes we just run ourselves ragged where we, we and, and oftentimes the first thing to go is just a, a recognition of God's presence and his involvement in our lives. What does rest look like for you? To cease and just recognize God. And there's a variety of reasons that cause us to just run and keep going and keep going. Maybe for you, you're a workaholic and you just can't let go because you have to build the business. Or you fear not doing enough that you'll miss out on the next promotion. Maybe you just find significant self-worth in what you can accomplish and it drives you to just never let go. Do you just want to be the best and, and, and have everybody else to think you're the best because of what you accomplish? Do you just need to be busy because our world has told you that that's what is valuable? What you do is what defines you. Have you convinced yourself that your kid's going to be the next superstar athlete? So you got to invest in every opportunity of athletics. Now, all those things can be good things. Like we were made to work hard. We were made to invest in these things. Sports and athletics can be a, a phenomenal pursuit. But we at least need to recognize that we easily walk a tight line between faithful hard work and prideful, misdirected busyness. You see, God has given the, us the freedom to not be identified by what we do. We aren't defined by what we do. And we're given freedom to simply rest and know that He still watches over us. But this Sabbath is a necessary rhythm for us to live out. It's a calling, a principle set forth in Scripture that really allows us to just enjoy this world and the things that God has given us. But it also points us to a much greater spiritual reality. This theme of Sabbath points us to the ultimate and final rest that God will bring. As we labor and as we toil in a fallen world, in the book of Romans we even read that it says the creation itself groans. And so we toil and we labor in the hope of the final redemption of all things. And it's that redemption in which God will restore this creation and He will restore His image. And the Sabbath rest that God first brought about at the beginning will be finally realized again in our lives. So as we regularly seek Sabbath in our lives, it's not just to re-energize ourselves but it's also a regular opportunity to trust that God still rules over all. And we can cease from our labor and from our toil, and things will not fall apart. And our rest regularly should be a reminder of the hope that we have of entering into God's rest eternally. So are we a people who believes that God still cares for humanity? and one who has offered us the ability to rest in his care. 
Well, as we have seen throughout this entire first chapter of Genesis, and as we move forward, we're called over and over to remember that this is a story that is not first and foremost about us. But this is a story about God. And I hope you've seen that in this first chapter of Genesis and as we move forward. This is about God, the one who has created this world, the one who has made us, who is establishing his purposes, who is wanting to make his name great and allowing us to enter into relationship with him to enjoy the glory that he has in himself. So in this passage, we see that God's grace and his purposes are seen in his creation, his commission, and his care of humanity. And when we embrace his design and we live under his rule, God declares that it is very good. So let's pray to this God who has made us, defined us, and still loves us. Father, we thank you for choosing of your own grace and your own will to make us in your image. And we know that in this life we so often fail to reflect and image you as we should. And for that we ask forgiveness, but I pray that you would continue to do the work in us through your spirit to transform us and restore us to the image of Christ. Let us set our eyes on you and uh, find hope in you and what you have done for us. Let us view this world as those who are made in your image who need to be restored to their creator. So let us love this world well, love our neighbors well, serve this world for our good and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.